Hello, my name is Chip Jacobs. I am the author of Arroyo, a novel uh, set around construction of Pasadena's mysterious Colorado Street Bridge in 1913. And I'm delighted to be in conversation with Gary Lipman, the author of Set the Controls for the Heart of Sharon Tate. And it is just a gem of a book. I'm um, just devouring it. I'm almost near the end. And uh, it's, it's a story about obsession, but it's really a mystery, a psychological thriller, and a true commentary on, um, on how we glorify and dig into uh, bloodshed when it comes to Hollywood. So, Gary, thanks for being here. It's my pleasure, Chip. I'm really happy to be talking to you today. Um, so, Gary, you have a, a pretty unusual background, um, and I do want to ask you a little bit about it. Um, this is your first book, is that correct? Well, it's my first published novel. I've, I uh, have pub written a bunch of others that I haven't brought to market yet, okay. um, but this is the first one that uh, is out there in the world. Okay, great. You are, well, I look forward to seeing what else you're going to uh, come up with. Um, cool. you, you know, you weren't the traditional guy who was an MFA or, you know, an English major, um, journalist, former journalist like me. You got a law degree from a fantastic school, Northwestern, and um, were involved with New York's Innocence Project. Um, exactly. You're a playwright as well and um, have written for some really notable publications like the New York Times, uh, the Paris Review, etc. So, you know, can you just tell us how did your past lead you to write this book? Well, I've always been an avid writer and uh, kind of derailed my writing ambitions by going to law school purely because, A, I, I thought criminal law seemed like a really cool field, but um, the main reason was uh, I just didn't have enough faith in myself as a writer to want to set out into the world and, and do that without some, uh, some other cover, you know, professional yeah. cover. And I had a girlfriend way back when who said, well, why don't you be a lawyer and you could practice law during the day and write at night, um, which I did do. But um, I, looking back, I'm not one of these people who says I have no regrets. I do have plenty of regret. I just don't let them sink me. But one regret uh, I do have uh, is I wish I'd written in earnest, you know, full time earlier on. And um, then again, the law, the law work I did, um, which was mainly criminal law work and uh, focused on exonerating people who we really believe were innocent, usually using DNA evidence. Um, that was really interesting work. I haven't really written about it in my fiction yet, or even in the journalism work I've done in recent years. But it certainly went into my went into to my files for future stuff to write about. There were incredible stories around those innocent people, and sometimes the people we thought were innocent who, oops, turned out to be uh, incriminated by their DNA after all. Not many people in that elk of that elk, but there were some. Um, it's interesting that you say all that because, in a way, I feel like you are um, exonerating Sharon Tate a bit from the cult of worship because you do something fascinating in the book. You, it's really about a book inside of a book in in, in some aspects, and you have you you. 
you know, it, it reminds me a bit of the book Lonely, uh, Lovely Bones. Um, oh, the, yeah, yeah. Where the narrator is talking from the afterlife, but really you're letting Sharon Tate through your protagonist, very flawed protagonist, you're, you know, you're letting her speak instead of letting her be talked about. So, I mean, um, that leads to my qu next question. Are, were you just a natural born Manson murder obsessive, a Sharon Tate? <laughs> I mean, where did this bubble up from? Well, the, the story uh, is that, uh, and I uh, have one really directly autobiographical part of my novel. The rest is pretty much fabricated. But, uh, and, and, you know, I did what a lot of fiction writers do. I'll bet you do it as well, Chip, with your fiction, which is you say, what if? In inventing stories, you have a kernel of an idea and you say, well, what if this, this guy got away with that crime? Or what if this, you know, without giving away any spoiler, Quentin Tarantino engages in that in his own Sharon Tate themed or partly themed uh, film that's out now, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, with the ending where he does a big what if. Um, so I... I when I was a kid, I actually saw on TV a movie rerun with Sharon Tate featured in it, and I fell in love, as only an 11-year-old boy will do. I really, yeah. I really uh, was smitten with her and then realized uh, that it was Sharon Tate, and she, I knew she, even though I was only 11, I'd heard about the Manson murders, and realized that she was um, their victim, or one of their victims. So I was horrified. Uh, cut to a few years later, I discovered that uh, she was murdered on my birthday when wow. I turned six. Actually, just an hour after my birthday had ended, but it was the nighttime, so it's still, you know, kind of the way, you know, the, she died early in the 9th of August, but it was still August 8th for, for her staying up that night, you know, past midnight. So, um I uh, found that connection, but what really, the real genesis of the book was when I began asking myself, what if I'd been uh, fixated on Sharon Tate after that moment when I was an 11-year-old boy? Uh, instead of moving on, what if I'd become just completely fixated on her and built my whole life around her? And then the what if started really kicking in and asking myself, you know, what would life be like for someone who was so obsessive? And of course, I had a deeper, deeper intention, which was to just uh, portray someone who was obsessed in general, you know, and in, in this case, this person's specific deal was obsession with Sharon Tate. But of course, uh, it would, you know, any, any pop culture obsession um, would do. Then again, this one was loaded with all that, that uh, Manson and Polanski and all the other people uh, in her orbit who were fascinating in their own rights. And so, um, but my real interest was, of course, Manson and uh, to a lesser extent, Polanski sort of are presences, antagonistic presences in my book. But the focus really was Sharon Tate. It is for my protagonist and... Uh, she's much more of a presence in the book than uh, Manson or Polanski. And thank you for mentioning the parts of my book, the book within a book where uh, my protagonist is writing in her voice about her life. Uh, my cousin, who's a wonderful writer, Jillian Lauren, 
mention critically that, you know, who is my protagonist to presume to speak for Sharon Tate, especially now that she's not around to speak for herself. And of course, I did have, um, did have a, an ironic sense with that. And as you've mentioned, Chip, my protagonist is deeply flawed. So, um, well, they have to be, but you oh, know, yeah. what I, what I, you know, I mean, it's, you know, you, you ask yourself as you're reading, is your, you know, um, and by the way, you know, you have a very unusual name protagonist. Um, yeah. Uh, Lunt Moreland. Um, it, it almost sounds like some, a, a name you would hear running off the set of Boogie Nights. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you ask yourself, is this a man uh, whose obsession, compulsion is driving him insane is he about to die? Is he um, the victim of a you know a murder plot by the Mansonites? Um, you know it, and he's you know it's, he has a milestone coming up, and I, I love that type of thing where you don't really know. It, it's kind of like you're gaslighting the reader, but when you gaslight the reader, it makes you want to turn pages. I also, right. you know, I'm I I just love looking for gorgeous sentences in books, and I really liked what you said about this hotel you made up where she, you know, she often stayed and, you know, I, I'm going to quote your, your book. And she said, she loved its blend of charming design and loose decadence. You know, that's just, that, that's just good, crisp writing. Thank you, Chip. Thank you. you. Say, um, you know, um, uh, you, you had a really kind of another funny one talking about, um, <laughs> uh, you know, he has a kind of autoerotic, experience with her she's got he, um just to tell you know listeners um lunt comes out to a sharon tate conference lunt is pitching a book uh, about her he's um you know he's kind of built a shrine for her in this holly you know famous hollywood or infamous hollywood hotel and um says you know after an experience you know uh, with her spirit says delirium or at least a twilight state with full production values. I mean, that's just, that's just, <laughs> that is, you know, I, you know, that's what I love about fiction. Only you in, could have written that. So Gary, you know, very well done. Thank you, Chip. Well, as a writer of great books yourself, you're no stranger to fine language. So, uh, and I'm also sure. and we could, we could talk for years. I, I did take, uh, you know, the personal view, you, um, I, I'm a big believer in reincarnation. It, it does play in my novel. It's going to play in every book I write. Uh, you know, you uh, mentioned the Beatles. I'm a Beatle maniac. Um, and you said, you know, your character um, just disassociates himself with the Beatles. However, you do work in a George Harrison song title. <laughs> yes, you pass. notice that. Well, even though my protagonist disassociates himself from the Beatles because of the, the way Manson uh, co-opted them or tried to, I love the Beatles, and I'm looking forward to getting the new reissue of Abbey Road, right. which is out. I, I know I can't. I, I, I'm myself as well. You know, um, I'll, I'll just say this last, uh, I'll just ask this last question. You know, you were probably about the same age, and I noticed you bring up a lot of 60s TV shows, 60 actresses, 60s actresses, you know, who didn't, you know, who were actually A-list before they wound up on, you know, Hollywood Squares, you know, as a C-list celebrity. Um, did that just come, did you watch a lot of, you know, those shows growing up? I mean, you've been bringing Mr. Ed, the original uh, single this, genius. 
Right, <laughs> Mr. Ed. And uh, actually, I bring up Mr. Ed not only because, yes, I'll admit now publicly, and this will stay in my permanent record, I guess, forever, I used to watch Mr. Ed, and not entirely with a critical eye either, because I was born in 63. So when Mr. Ed was running, I was, you know, a little kid, and I dug it. You know what I really look back at with fondness? I didn't watch it regularly, but I wonder if you remember, Chip, the TV show, My Mother, the Car. I don't remember that. But I'll tell you, <laughs> I, I set my IQ down about 20 points watching a lot of that ridiculous. So did, so did I. It's a wonder I can even remember this show, but I urge everybody. I think there's clips of it on YouTube. This has to be the craziest. I wish I were in the room when the writer pitched this concept and somebody said, let's do it, because it was about a guy whose mother dies and gets reincarnated into his car. So while he's driving around, she's giving him orders, not just, you know, slow down. But so have you asked that girl out at work? <laughs> you know, that's uh, it's, it, God, it's crazy. That, only in the 60s, man, only in the 60s would but, they have come up with that idea. But um, that's true. Um, one, uh, I wrote the first book I wrote was about my uncle, who was a quadriplegic who had a very dynamic life in Hollywood, to say the least. And when I was doing research, um, it, a little, you know, this light bulb went off on my head, you know, realizing the more tumultuous the time with Vietnam, you know, Jim Crow South, um, you know, what was going on on campuses, the, the more there was chaos, the more Hollywood tried to create escape, create escapism, as if the, you know, reality was just too hard, too much of a harshing of one's mellow. And that's why they put out a lot of rural comedy sitcoms. Did you know that? Like Green Acres and right. <laughs> uh, uh, Petticoat Junction. And, you know, they called them rural comedies. But really, it was distraction from what Walter Cronkite was talking about. I, that's totally I, that that sounds exactly right to me. And. I think that it was also, it was such an unusual time, not only for that yin-yang of the violence at the, on the TV news and the insouciant, you know, silliness on, on the rest of the television uh, programming, but um, it was, I mentioned in the book, I think that, uh, or maybe it's in something else I've written, that um, the, there was a real innocence to the music then, to the pop music then, that um, perfectly dovetailed with my own childhood, early childhood. I was born in 63. So, you know, throughout the 60s, I'd hear on my mother's car radio songs like, you know, Along Came went, uh, Mary and by the Association and, you know, uh, Beatles songs and, and um, tons of vapid pop songs that seemed perfectly cued to my own early you right. know, childhood innocence. So, uh, and by the seventies, there were innocent songs, but it wasn't quite the same. It wasn't wide-eyed. Yes. Um, what and you're right. I mean, the sixties. Yeah. I have to say, like you, I think um, fat. I, I think they're the most fascinating decade, not only that I lived through, but that I know of. I mean, I, I haven't studied the full range of American history, but certainly for the twentieth century, it was just such an incredible. Uh, decade in which it seems like uh, black and white suddenly turned to technicolor. And, uh, uh, I would tend to agree. 
You know, um, one of the reasons uh, we live in a pretty dark time now. Um, Absolutely. You know, if actually, if you look at bigger statistics, the world has never been doing better. But viscerally, it seems like it's never been worse. And we're going backwards in so many ways from, you know, uh, climate change to uh, dem demagoguery, uh, tribalism, those things. So, um, you know, I think in, in my soul, I wanted to live in a more optimistic, bright-eyed, romantic time. That's why I put, you know, th that that's why my novel, most of it takes place in 1913 America, the progressive <laughs> age, you know, and it was, between, yeah. it was between World War One and the Gilded Time. And, you know, it was a great time to be alive. No, there weren't antibiotics. And, you know, you couldn't get Amazon Prime. Maybe that was a great thing. Um, but <laughs> it was a time you could dream. You know, it was a time yeah. when the world was discovering the wonders of concrete. I mean, concrete actually was a sign of prosperity. And they tried to create concrete ships. You know, they thought it was going to change the world and no longer have horrible fires that killed 80 people, you know, in a tenement. Um yeah. So, you know, I think we're always looking for romantic or optimistic times. You know, what is the good <clears throat> times? My, and my book, somewhat like yours, does really ask the question about myth versus reality and also, you know, um, tries to give a voice to people that don't have it. So um, right. I really identified that part, uh, that part of your book. Well, thank you. I, I look forward to reading yours, the new one, Arroyo. Set, it's set in 1913, you said? It is, yeah. It's, um, it's a, so it's a, right before the, the, the deluge with World War One. That's true. Um, yeah, yeah, which, which, yeah that, World War One. I, I just recently read a book, I can't remember the title, a nonfiction book about Vienna and the Austro-Hungarian Empire in 1913, right before the war. And, of course, they were at the center of the beginning of the war. And um, they, they were just sleepwalking into it. You know, they really, uh, it's a fascinating book. Uh, I forgot the title, and I, the f author, I think, is Frederick. I can't remember his name, but at any rate. Sounds like um, a German name. Yeah, uh, it's a book, uh, you know, focused on Vienna, but it ranges around, and it focuses uh, especially on Freud and some of the politicians and writers and artists and how they all, nobody really recognized that they were standing on the precipice, and how World War I would just strip away any illusions they had, like you're speaking of, uh, for Europe, and of course that happened here to an extent as well. You see Hemingway and his so-called lost generation in the 20s, who were completely alienated thanks to the war, thanks in large part to the war. So... Um, my protagonist, in a way, is trying to crawl back into the womb of the 60s and by loving Sharon Tate and trying to keep her alive through his love, in a way, um, he's trying to crawl back into the, the 60s. And, you know, I must confess that I myself look back at that with great nostalgia and also um, wishing, wishing we could be back there. I mean, as terrible as the Vietnam War was, and what followed with Watergate, I mean, seems pretty damn innocent compared to where at where we're at now. 
Well, I, I invite you to come back to 1913 Pasadena. <laughs> I look forward to it. I will be. Where you could <laughs> think about, you know, like in Los Angeles, you know, they say, you you know, on certain days you could um, ski in the local mountain range in the morning and be surfing in the afternoon. Well, in 1913 Pasadena and the area, you could ride an ostrich in the morning, take a stroll <laughs> through the eighth wonder of the world, Bush Gardens, which was created by the Budweiser founders, Adolphus right. Bush, who was just a just fascinating person. And, you know, then in the afternoon, take an incredible ride into the clouds on uh, Thaddeus Lowe's railway, which involves all types of new technology. And you could just be up there five, 6,000 feet and just see the valley floor, the checkerboard uh, grids and appreciate, you know, the future uh, um, rising up, you know, one piece of concrete and one, you know, glorious Victorian at a time. It, it's, it's just wonderful to be able to take people back to that time and especially yourself. I think it's actually very healthy. You know, well, well I, I, I agree. I think um, I live, a, I, in a sense, I spend a lot of time in the past. I'm very nostalgic, not only for my own life, but reading history and imagining. I had a grandmother who, was, who died at age 102 about 20 years ago, and I would always ask her stories about uh, her early life in the very early 20th century. In fact, I asked her... Uh, when she, uh, who was the first president she voted for, and it was startling to hear she said, Wilson, but I could have voted earlier than that, but women didn't have the vote. That's true. That's right. Um, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm really interested in the whole suffragette movement. That does play a, a part of my book. That's his love interest is this quirky, uh, traumatized suffragette. Um, you know, going back on obsessions with Sharon Tate, you know, my character is obsessed with construction of the Colorado Street Bridge, which was this landmark, unusually curved bridge uh, going over Pasadena's Arroyo Seco, <coughs> sort of a viaduct between L.A.'s two great valleys. You know, and, you know, there is, um, you know, there's a saying, be careful about your hero worship. You don't want to get too close to the stars or you may right. get there, you know, yeah. actually just like a common asteroid. And that's what my character finds. You know, he's so engrossed with this bridge. I mean, I think actually he he could just like stare, go in a catatonic stare for days. But only after he gets a real understanding of who created her, the dishonesty around her, the bad blood baked into her, you know, reinforced uh, concrete with rebar and, you know, all that goes with it. You know, what what seems, you know, flawless one day can come back later as quite poisonous. And so, uh, it sounds like you and I are no, are very similar in our approach to obsession and fascination with obsession. Yes. Actually, I found before we spoke, um, I found a great quote on Brainy Quote, which is I, I can just it's my own wormhole. Um, a a a Frenchman named Jacques Lacan once said, obsession does not necessarily mean sexual obsession, not even obsession for this or that in particular. 
To be an obsessional, which I've never heard, means to be means to find oneself caught in a mechanism and a trap increasingly demanding and endless. And, and that made me think, you know, when you're obsessed, you're really almost a prisoner to it as much as a advocate for it, don't you think? Oh, totally. And and uh, without giving away any spoilers, uh, I've always said uh, to friends who ask about my book that it's a very moral book in the sense that I take a critical view. Uh, really, uh, I, I have a judgmental view of my protagonist and his obsession. I don't think it's healthy. I think, you know, balance, as boring as it is, you know, the middle ground, the golden mean that Aristotle spoke about, is pretty boring, you know, in our uh, in, in in our age where you know everything's fast and cool and intense and on the edge. But I think it's a healthier and maybe even uh, more moral way of living to have a balance in your life to balance things out, not be too extreme in too many things. Of course, it's good to indulge sometimes and be immoderate, but moderation uh, in my old age at least has come to seem like a really cool value so obsession by definition is sort of immoderate right you're sort of uh, losing uh, not maintaining control of balance you're veering too far in a direction and even though it may be really sweet-spirited your protagonist with the bridge and mine with with a movie actress you know it may not all be to the good that's I completely agree, and you know you could almost say obsession is a form of mental illness taken too far. Um, I, one thing I want to say about Sharon Tate, you know, I did see. I'm a big fan of Quentin Tarantino, especially um, obviously Pulp Fiction and Inglorious Bastards. I find his other movies are a little bit like um, uh, porn, you know, almost like uh, violence porn or blood porn. Um, I did not like his last movie, and I thought, you know... You mean uh, you didn't like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I absolutely did not. You know, I mean... Yeah, I did not either, and I'm okay. glad to hear you didn't, because some friends tell me they think it's his best. I, I, I do not. I, I just see it, um, you know, a couple beefcakes, you know, with a, some, you know, it's, it's you know, he's he's capitalizing on the Manson's spectacular publicity you know, everlasting, you know, wave with, um, you know, it's really about a actor whose time has passed. And if they would have just done that movie, but I think to change the facts of the horror of the Manson family, which don't deserve to be glorified, the guy was just a failed musician, uh, a rapist, uh, you know, a cult leader, and uh, just an awful human being with very little redeeming value. I thought it was, I thought it was kind of sickening to Sharon Tate's uh, legacy. And you know, I know he, I guess he was in contact with her family. I'm much more enjoying your story because your story is getting to something deeper, rather than rewriting history. Of course, Quentin Tarantino rewrote history in Inglorious Bastards, but. You know, uh, that one crackled with attention and it wasn't as exploitative, I felt like. So, you know, uh, I'm glad to read a book about the about Sharon Tate that's different. So, you know. Well, well thank you, man. I, I appreciate that. And I certainly wrote it with the intention of uh, from a place of respect for her, for her, for her memory and for her humanity 
as I write in an author's note, I wanted to be really clear about that because she was, of course, a very real person and uh, who suffered terribly. And um, and uh, I wanted to uh, show the pitfalls of of, of uh, obsession of someone obsessed with her, but also. Uh, I certainly uh, agree with you about Manson. I mean, Manson was, uh, the story keeps going and people are still fascinated by it because it was so loaded, the whole tale, not only Manson, Sharon Tate, Polanski. I mean, it's just such a complicated and incredibly, um, incredibly uh, charged well, it became a cultural mega story. Yeah, it became a cultural touchstone, and you know, people said the Manson murders represented the end of the '60s. I mean, right? You know, you could say the Tet Offensive did, um, or the break. Other the people say Altamont, Altamont, the Altamont Festival, the Stones, uh, and other right. bands did a few weeks after. Well, a few months after. I mean, '69, the year that Abbey Road came out. And by the way, Abbey Road, the cover of the Beatles walking across Abbey Road, that really iconic record cover, was shot on August 8th, 1969. I recently was reminded, which was my birthday and was hours before wow. the Manson murders, the first Manson murders. Uh, yeah, so, but Manson um, and, and, and everything in his wake, you know, is so, shoots off so many sparks of meaning a guy I went to high school with named Jeffrey Melnick wrote a book recently called uh, Manson's Creepy Crawling. And uh, he really does a deep, deep dive into all the intellectual and philosophical implications of the Manson murders. Not focused on Sharon Tate so much, but Manson specifically and the milieu that he came up in. As you said, Chip, he was a failed songwriter. He was a successful pimp. I think uh, one key to Manson is that he was uh, he learned pimping in prison, and he really knew how to manipulate people in general and run away uh, lost soul young women and girls in particular. Uh, he was a horrible, horrible person, and the '60s, you know, threw up a lot of cultural disorder that he took advantage of purely for his own selfish means. And um, it's just so many collisions of different, um, different forces. So I think we're still talking about it now for that reason. But for me, with my book, it was originally about this guy seeing Sharon Tate falling in love and then realizing with horror, this, as a boy, the, my protagonist, realizing with horror that she was murdered. And everything came from there for me with the book and that's when I started asking as I said the questions what if what if and you know the story just kind of developed from there I um well it uh, it you know it captivated me um I uh, people ask me and uh you know if there's any uh cultural parallels or movies like my my story and you know I I don't know if there are but I do tell people about my book you know, um, if Groundhog Day and Born on the Fourth of July could have a baby, it would produce. A baby. <laughs> um, I was, wow! I was really affected by uh, Ron Kovacs' Born on the Fourth of July, and in many ways, as was I. As was uh, I. My my character is somewhat 
um, you know, inspired by him. You know, Ron Kovacs was born on the 4th of July, literally July 4th. He was a gung-ho Marine that couldn't wait to get into combat. And then once he was in the center of what he uh, wanted to fight for, he realized its soul was rotten. You know, the war effort, and he became a dissident. And my character, you know, is very much like that, you know, where he was once obsessed with the Colorado Street Bridge and his hometown, thinking they could do no wrong, despite evidence that it was just like any other place in terms of, you know, moral iniquity. Uh, he changes his tune. And, you know, in my belief system, I don't think our souls ascend to the highest levels until we take care of our business on earth and we risk it all to tell yes. the truth, to uh, act out of our own self, act not out of self-interest, but human interest. So for me, there was a big philosophy in there. But, you know, like you, I wanted to, I mean, you're very funny in your book. I'm hoping people think I'm funny or the the scenes are humorous. You, you never know. I mean, you you have a funny sex scene in your book. I definitely have a couple in mine. Um, yeah. I, I hope people don't get offended and know it's supposed to be entertaining. But, you know, um, it's, um, you know, I don't think any of, you know, I think we're all uh, influenced by what we see on TV <clears throat> and, uh, and reading books. But ultimately, it's about us and our personal philosophies about life. Don't you think? I do, and I'm going to read you something I saw online today. Someone I've been looking online a lot, given the political situation uh, this week and the past few weeks, and uh, I, something jumped out at me, which many would say is corny, but it's exactly apropos with what you're saying. Someone posted, a guy named, who I don't know named Scott Souls posted today, what if this quote, what if success was no longer measured in terms of achievement, but rather in terms of humility, thankfulness, wonder, a life of love, and being faithful in the ordinary stuff of life? I think that's, um, I, I fully get behind that. Um, I think we're living in an a age of hypercapitalism and status, c continual status insecurity. It's almost like yeah. being set up. We're forgetting what matters. There was a um, a like a multi-year Harvard study that asked people what constitutes real life satisfaction, and it isn't winning awards or you know increasing the bottom line of your company or the margin by X percentage. It was your relationships. You know, it was what you were doing for other people. You know, and yeah. there is a great value in humility. Um, in service, and, and, and we've just gotten so far away from that. And, you know, I do think a, a problem with social media is that it, it's always exploiting our need to feel affirmed and relevant. And um, it just, yeah. it, it, it's, it, I mean, it's, it, I mean, if the devil was going to try to create something, he couldn't have done better than this algorithm because it, you know, it makes it so, <laughs> it makes it so external instead of inter, you know, internal, not, not that there aren't more, far more good people than bad, but we're, we're living in an age where those, I mean, it's, it's uh, somewhere along the lines, our values got prostituted. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, it's a continuum. I think that even 
uh, in the early 20th, uh, all through history, human nature, I think, has been pretty, pretty consistent. And there have always been people who are far more status-minded and exploitative. Uh, you go back, I mean, to the Middle Ages with feudalism and all that, or ancient Rome with slaves, slaves even here in this country as recently as 150 years ago. You know, people, human nature has always been a mixed bag, you know, with a lot of good people and a lot of bad people. But the technology now has sped things up in such a way. And I was out with a friend last night. You mentioned earlier that, you know, Steven Pinker, this writer, has published a book. I think it's called The Better, the Better Angels of Our Nature, right. uh, where, where he talks about how things actually, if you look at a lot of uh, statistical and sociological factors, things are better now than they ever were. They are. A friend of mine last night who's a, who's a wonderful artist, uh, older woman, and very wise was saying that's bullshit we really are in bad shape you know we're he was talking about you know specific things okay yeah there's more penicillin now etc but in a lot of ways we're more fucked excuse me more screwed than ever and um i actually don't yeah i mean i i, I mean this is you're raising a point that gets into both of our books which is the dark and the sensational tends to reinforce your pre-existing views than if you were to look at a United Nations index of like, uh, you know, child mortality, um, access to water, uh, education. Uh, you know, yeah. Af Africa actually is, uh, at least a re pretty recently, had the most roaring economy GDP-wise than any other continent. And um, yeah. But people wouldn't believe it. You know, it's there is an echo chamber effect you know, um, you know, I don't think there's any more murders per capita now than there were back in the 40s and 50s. We just have a thing called Twitter that makes it seem more nefarious and menacing. So, yeah, but but that know, goes into the water and into the air and into our psyches, that hostility and that people hiding behind pseudonyms and the trolling and throwing out Gary, really bad. But I, I would say there, you know, we 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 have transcended many things. We've now transcended information with the internet, so there's no excuse yeah. for weak thinking. You know, yeah. you're going to watch Fox News, then watch, <clears throat> and then educate yourself. You know, where is our, you know, you know, the real obsession would be should be the truth. You know, and, I completely that agree. That seems to get oh, yeah. thrown in the trunk and have dust, duct tape wrapped around its mouth. Oh yeah, and you know what? What I think are very prescient words about where we're at now is Senator Moynihan, who passed away some years ago, New York State Senator, well, New York Senator to uh, the U.S., U.S. Senator from Former New York, Pat Patrick Moynihan. And Moynihan said about someone, you're entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. That's, that's true. Remember the quote? Exa and that's exactly that's what we're seeing, where Fox News and... Uh, you know, everybody's staking a claim to their own facts. I happen to agree with with one network rather than the other. But, you know, I, I, I think that uh, Fox News is absolute propaganda. But uh, they're skewing things. And my background as a lawyer taught me that, you know, people, you know, any lawyer faced with a case tries to take the facts and arrange them the best they can. The idea is not to lie. Unfortunately, with the Internet propagating so much stuff, we, you know, lies are being passed off as truth shamelessly, you know, yeah. and people aren't 
don't have one fact base the way you mentioned Walter Cronkite before the newscaster from the 60s who everybody trusted and believed um, then again they also trusted their president their US president then and of course uh, Nixon wasn't the first to be lying to them he was just busted um, but uh, so truth has always been a little slippery but never nearly as much as it is now Yes, I uh, I have uh, thought of my own. Uh, I, I I I wish we could raise the pay of our public officials, give them a you know double their double their salaries, um, have some campaign finance reform. I want to see all publicly funded elections personally, um, but I think if you're going to run for public office at a certain level, you should agree to have a electrode impl uh, implanted in your chest. And, uh, you know, there needs to be artificial intelligence, you know, a machine that's maybe, you know, in the Jefferson Memorial. And, if it, 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 you know, you are saying something demonstrably false. You're going to get, you know, 120 volts of truth, you know, injected into you. And I think can, I, I think we would Pavlovian condition them. You know, I think that, that, you know, it would almost be great to have a character named the truth in a book, you know, and maybe give her a flamethrower. But, you know, Chip, this is, this is your book. This is your next book, man. I would read that book. I, I, I believe me. I, I, um, you know, I, 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 I'm more independent, liberal skewing. But I even have a problem with CNN because I feel like they're fan, they're use, they're fanning the billows of heat over something twenty four seven. And I think um, modern media creates obsession. I think Twitter creates obsession. People are squabbling without facts. They're squabbling from their biases. And I agree completely. Jesus, I agree completely. Need, why can't Aristotle return to Earth, you know, in his robe and start teaching us, you know, about him and his friend Socrates, his Socratic method? That's the stuff I learned in prep school. And uh, today does not pass muster. But um, Gary, I think we're coming up on our time. So uh, okay. I I'm going to say thank you. I'm going to tell people, um, you know, uh, Set the Controls for the Heart of Sharon Tate is not a book, um, you know, about Sharon Tate uh, in the absolute sense. It's about um, celebrity obsession. It's about sanity. It's about asking what's a healthy relationship between us ourselves and our stars. And, you know, if you're in the grip of the Hollywood machine, you're still in the grip of something that's not you. And, right. Exactly. You know, step, step back. So um, it's a fantastic book. And thank you. And Chip, thank you for all your kind words and interest. And this has been a terrific conversation for me. I appreciate it. Look forward to your books as well. And maybe even your next book, uh, having some of those concepts you just laid out. I think that's a terrific idea for something in fiction. That's right. Or that's in truth, or in truth, because truth indeed is where it's at. We can I, get there. I, I'm, uh, I'm already working. You know, I'm, this is my first novel, and I have a lot to learn. You know, and I, you know, every book I read, including yours, I'm learning all the time. That to me is the greatest joy of life is learning. Um, and well, we uh, learn by doing, right? I mean, doing, do. writing a lot is how you get, is one way of getting better at it and uh, being, having people give you feedback and learning from mistakes, but writing, writing, writing. So I hope to do more and I look forward to you doing more. A absolutely. In my next life, I have my uh, character who's obsessed with a uh, turn-of-the-century psychic. And uh, 
you know, uh, I think I think I think it's going to uh, strum the strings of your own interests. So um, anyway, Gary, uh, you've been great. Thanks so much. You know, you've given Thank you, Chip. an original work and read, you know, read um, set the controls for the heart of Sharon Tate. Um, this is Chip Jacobs. I'm the author of Arroyo um, speaking on Rare Bird Radio, and we'll see you down the literary line. Take care.